stop bullying and shouting at the lower orders? Never! There's only one way to win a campaign. Shout, shout and shout again! This is Shot and Shield. Listening in Vienna, Austria, Charlotte, North Carolina, and Montevideo, Uruguay, this is the Shot and Shield Supercast. A podcast dedicated to 19th century wargaming and history, a program meant to be heard while you are painting your miniatures and building your terrain. I am your host, the Grand Duke Scott of the Duchy of Florida, and in this episode, I'll be doing a deep dive on gaming U.S. Marines at the turn of the century in Gaming the U.S. Marines, catchy title. I have a movie review for you, the 1980 classic Lion of the Desert with the awesome Anthony Quinn. Also, a new scenario builder entitled Evacuation. Again, another snappy title. I've brought back the watch along. And in this episode, I'll be commenting on the train ambush scene from Lawrence of Arabia. And to end the program, as usual, in the audio archaeological segment, you are there, the Battle of Gettysburg, by request, by request. But first, let's hit those emails. Germany calling, London calling. Moscow calling, Washington DC calling, Peking calling, Sydney calling. Message for you, son. It's time to answer some emails from all around the world. So if you'd like to email uh, me here at uh, Shot and Shield, uh, it's shotandshield at gmail.com. You can also hit the Twitter at Shot and Shield or uh, on the Facebook group, Shot and Shield Podcast Wargaming Group uh, on the Facebook. Again, Snappy titles. Uh, This first email comes from Harry in San Diego. And Harry writes, I loved your last program with Claude. You guys sound like you have a great time. I heard an email you were discussing where the writer was in a club. It got me thinking, Duke Scott, have you ever been in a club? If you haven't, have you ever thought about starting one? I'll hang up and listen to your answer off air. LOL. (laughs) Harry, that's funny. Hang up and listen for the answer. That's pretty funny. Uh, first off, uh, Claude. I love Claude. Claude's an amazing guy, um, and I love I love having him on uh, when I can. And uh, he he has a lot of insight, and he's such a great uh, he, he's a great guy to bounce things off of. So it's it's always good to have Claude on. Uh, and you have to go go on Facebook and find Claude. Let me tell you something. He has some great stuff, and he is he is definitely the best dressed man in wargaming. He's definitely a bon vivant. That's the way it is. Anyway, as far as a club goes, uh, you know, I've never been part of a club. I haven't known many people to war game uh, in the town that I live or any town that I've ever lived in. It was always, if when I lived in uh, Miami, game with somebody, just to game with one person, it was a travel. Uh, in my current uh, location uh, on the Space Coast here in Florida, I will tell you that I... <sighs> I'd be hard-pressed to find anybody who plays any type of miniature games in uh, the county, let alone within um, a 25-mile radius. If you do, <laughs> send me an email. Uh, if you, it, it's, uh, but, but to have a club, but to create a club or to be in the club, uh, it's tough. Uh, that's kind of tough for me. Just, I think I'm just a singular guy. I think I just, I'm, I'm kind of a to myself type person. So even doing the conventions is a little bit of a stretch for me just because I'm so intro, I'm an introvert. You may not know it because of the, uh, the podcast here, but I really kind of am. I probably will not be joining a club or starting a club anywhere in the near future. So thank you very much, Harry. Great email. 
Uh, this next one comes from Ian in California, and Ian writes, Duke Scott, greetings from the left coast. Really? I saw some pictures you posted on Twitter of a metal conversion you completed. Can you walk through how you decided to make your conversions and why? They look fantastic. Uh, so the conversion that Ian's talking about is I took FE27, which is uh, Perry's French and Egypt number 27 line. It's uh, the dismounted dromedary skirmishing. Uh, these figures, A, are fantastic. They're so oddball, but they have these monster pantaloons. Um, they have chest plate of different uh, layers of decoration. Um, and they're, they have these long, long muskets. And I really like them a lot, except I hate the tricorn hat. I'll tell you straight up, unless I'm playing something in the 18th century, I don't want to see a tricorn hat anywhere near me. So I had some leftover heads from a Gripping Beast light Arab cavalry set that I had uh, attained, and it, they were fezes. They, they had uh, heads with fezes. That's it. And so I decided I was going to take, uh, take the heads off the dromedary uh, skirmishers and replace them with the, the fez heads, and I was going to make them Persian musketeers and add them to my Persian field force. How I decided to do that was just, I have to tell you, it's just because when I was looking at figures and I saw these dismounted dromedary figures from Perry's, I just thought to myself, I got to have those. I can't, I can't do the tricorn hat, but I swear I got to have those. Um, and then I got to do something with them. They sat on my, uh, they sat on my table for easily six months before I realized that, hey, you know what? I have these other heads. Let me go ahead and do something. Uh, and then from there, I uh, decided uh, to make them musketeers just because of the long muskets they had. And to add them to my Persian force, my Persian field force, was when I was doing research on the Persian Qajar army, I had found that the previous dynasty, the Safavid dynasty, still had a unit or two inside the Qajar army. So it was a holdover. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. I looked and looked and looked, and I couldn't find any any sort of resource on that. And so this conversion is purely from my mind and based on the history of the Qajars. And I, I did some research on the Safavid, the colors they would use. So when you see that uh, conversion, I literally just cut the heads right off of these uh, uh, dromedary, uh, dismounted dromedary skirmishers. I did what's called pinning. So I pinned the heads into the metal. Uh, I also took uh, some extra, an extra pin and pinned a, a drill bit into my uh, thumb and made sure I hit my bone because I really like doing that when I do these conversions. Uh, there was only a bunch of blood and uh, a first aid kit was involved. I would suggest if you're going to do any sort of conversions, please, please be careful. Don't be like me. Um, but it, they, they turned out great. I ended up finally, finally, after uh, literally uh, 18 months of them sitting on my desk, finally finishing them. Uh, I was really proud of their look. Got some great pictures. They're up on the uh, Facebook page. I also put them on the Twitter page. So there you go. Ian, thank you very much. Thank you for the love of the, uh, of the conversion. And also, I hope that answered your question. So let's move on. Uh, King Harold wrote me an email. It says, uh, Duke Scott, mate, I listen to your show on Spotify, but I keep getting ads. What's up? 
Love the show. Uh, King Harold, I don't know. Spotify, Apple Music, or Apple Podcast, uh, Spotify, Ghana, Deezer, Amazon Music, uh, Google, they all place ads in everybody's stuff, so there's not there's not anything I can really do about it. I Right now, I'm ad-free, and any ads that you hear are going to be from those companies. So that's what I got for you, King Harold. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. That's, the, that's how they make money. Uh, and, uh, you know, they look, they're not charging me to, for me to be on their, uh, their network. So I'll, I'll, I'll take it. It works, works out. Uh, last email here comes from Kyle in Dallas, Texas. And Kyle writes, thank you for reading my email. I hope to hear it on Shot and Shield. Well, Kyle, here you go. I'm having a hard time trying to find a rule set that I like. I've been painting 28mm South Africa, Zulu, Boar, and British for a couple of years now, but I have yet to play. I cannot find a set of rules that make me happy. I feel like I've spent hundreds of dollars on different rules, but none of them catch the feeling of the game that I would like to play. I'm at my wit's end, and so I'm writing to you for a suggestion or a recommendation. I've tried... Now, I'm not going to read uh, all the, the rules that, that Kyle's tried here. I'm not going to do that, uh, Kyle, but I understand you tried a lot of them here. I just want to move on. Uh, can you help me? I really like the show and that you mix up the content, and it is really easy to listen to as I paint. Thank you. Uh, Kyle, all right. So first off, uh, thank you uh, for, the, for the love, and I'm glad that you're listening and painting. Painting is the most important part of this whole deal. Gameplay, yes. Painting, more important than anything, at least in my opinion. Uh, look, I uh, totally understand that, uh, that perception, uh, how it's hard to find a rule set that fits what you want to do. I totally understand that. When I started playing Colonial in 19th century, I started out with Sword in the Flame. You know what? It's all right. It's cool. I'm not going to bust on it because a lot of people like playing it. I found that it was hard for me to get that many miniatures together to be able to have a really decent game. If I were to play the game exactly the way the rules say, okay? Uh, then I went to uh, the men who would be kings. And again, they, you wouldn't seem like a skirmish type game would have, would need that many figures, that many units. But again, it's kind of required if you're going to play the game exactly the way it's meant to be played without any adaptions. Now I'm on to a Blood and Steel, which for me has adapted very well to what I would like to play. But it took me a while. It took me a long time. I started playing Sword in the Flame back in the early 80s, maybe even in the early, uh, late 70s. So to find, uh, to find a, a rule set that really works for you, it might be hard. Here's what I would suggest, though, okay? I would suggest that you take one of your rule sets that you have listed here. Now, I'm, again, I'm not going to read the rule sets yet because I don't want to... I don't want to disparage any of the rule sets that he's that uh, Kyle's tried, um, because I think it's important that uh, everybody's perception of rules are different. But Kyle, I would suggest that you take one of the rule sets, play it 
exactly the way it's meant to be played. Do that. And then write down the things that you like about it and write down the things that you're not feeling. And do that for every rule set that you already own. The one that has the least things that you that you dislike and has the most things that you do like, I would take that and then I would go ahead and do adaptions to get rid of the stuff that you don't like. That's what I would do. That's how I would approach it. Because right now you have you have invested all your time in painting and getting all the figures mounted and making them look uh, spot on and perfect and beautiful. And now you want to play. You're going to have to take some time, take a couple of weekends and just play the games out. But do it exactly how they're they're portrayed in the game. OK, and that's that's my suggestion. That's that's how I would approach it. Um, and then from there. Uh, I would like to have you email me back after you do this and let me know what you what you, how you, how that worked out for you and how you what kind of game you came to uh, conclude on because I think you'll find a, I, I think you'll find one that works for you if you approach it like that. All right, Kyle, thank you very much for the email, and that's it for our emails today. Coming up, Scenario Builder is next on Shot and Shield. Hey. What the blazes is this? A podcast dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming. All right, Marines. I punch. This is Shot and Shield. Shot and Shield is on social media. There's the Twitter page, at Shot and Shield. Please follow. There's a Facebook group, the Shot and Shield Podcast Wargaming Group. It's open to all. Please join and post some of your amazing games, paint jobs, and creations. Finally, the email, shotandshield at gmail.com. Email me if you have a question or a thought or even a complaint that you'd like read and answered on the podcast. Shot and Shield is on social media. This is Shot and Shield. I hear that conditions in your army are appalling. Well, I'm sorry, but those are my conditions, and you'll just have to accept them. The Shot and Shield Supercast rolls on, and I want to thank you for listening. And before I get to Scenario Builder, I, you know, I got to say, I get asked sometimes how I come up with my scenarios. I will say that history is obviously a great source, uh, but also current events. I was reading the news uh, the other day. I saw a piece about U.S. forces evacuating an embassy in Sudan. Obviously, because there's all kinds of trouble there. And then I thought about Charlton Heston in Khartoum and Gordon's mission to evacuate folks. I don't think that I've ever played a game where the mission was to move people safely from one point to another. I also saw, uh, it was at a convention, I want to say I saw pictures of Salute in England, where somebody had done the Vietnam uh, American Embassy compound, and they were playing that, that scenario of evacuation. It's really inspiring to see some of the games that you play and you post, but also just in history in itself, uh, some of, and, and current events, some of the things that happen that make you go, hey, that's a good idea. So with that said, here we go. 
pencil and paper ready. Get out your notebook. Get out your pen. Get out your pencil. Sharpen it. Be ready. It's time for Scenario Builder. Building better worlds. This episode's Scenario Builder is called Evacuation. I'm not going to sit here and say I'm going to come up with some flowery name for it. I'm just going straight for the ease, right? So I'm going to let you decide on what rule set you use because I think that the basics would be covered in most any rule set. I'm going to discuss this scenario using the Spanish-American War as the setting, but I could tell you that this uh, is going to work using any setting. Anglo-Zulu, Russo-Turk, U.S. Civil War, India, Mexico, South America, etc. You get the drill. I am choosing the uh, Spanish-American War just because I'd like uh, this program to have a parallel piece uh, for my gaming the U.S. Marines later uh, in the program. So let's get going. The mission is that the Spanish in Cuba must evacuate the mayor and the rich people from a town before the U.S. Marines arrive. Let's talk forces. Obviously, you should have a balanced force on both ends of the deal. I'm going to ask you to avoid artillery in this scenario. I have my reasons, which I'll address later. I think that your evacuation force should mostly be infantry unless you choose to evacuate uh, your folks using wagons. Then cavalry might be the predominant unit. You will need 10 to 20 figures to represent the evacuees. I would suggest uh, going with an even number because it's going to make it easier to figure out if you succeeded or not later uh, in the scenario. Let's talk gameplay. First, the Spanish start in the city. I think your city should be on one side of the table, and the objective is to get uh, these uh, civilians to the other side of the table. You're going to win if you get at least 60% of your evacuees intact to the other end of the table. You determine how big a table you want. I I think four by four, a four by four table or a four by three kind of platform is going to work best because you don't want to turn this into a a slog having to go six feet across the table. You feeling me? Next, the U.S. Marines will enter from three sides of the table in the first turn. One side has to be open, and that's the side that the Spanish must get to. Everything starts on turn one. The reason I don't want artillery used here is for the simple fact that the U.S. Marine player could just sit back and pound the Spanish forces without ever having to engage them. And I think that uh, that's bad gameplay, if, you, if you're feeling me. So that's the scenario. Evacuation. You determine what game set you're going to use, what rule set. You determine the size of the board, you determine what the terrain looks like and the size of the forces. But like I said, they should be even, all right? And that is Scenario Builder titled Evacuation. Still ahead, it's movie review time, the 1980 classic Lion of the Desert with the amazing Anthony Quinn coming up on Shot and Shield. This is Shot and Shield. It's going to hurt you a lot more than it will me, I'm happy to say. A podcast dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming. Discipline makes the strength of armies. Shot and Shield. From the land of the audio to the world of the visual, the Shot and Shield podcast is on YouTube. 
I use YouTube for supplementary information, such as watch-along videos, documentaries of interest, movies that I find that uh, best represent colonial or 19th century inspirations or gaming, and eventually video from interviews that I've uh, already done and that you've heard on the podcast. Just search out, in parentheses, Shot and Shield. You got to put the parentheses in there, parentheses, Shot and Shield, and parentheses, and you'll find it on the YouTube. There's also a link on the podcast info page. So check it out and subscribe to Shot and Shield on YouTube. This is Shot and Shield. Good luck against those elephants. There's a good ship, HMS Cup Robin, on a whole trip. Up and down she's bobbing, though the crew's pretty tough. The weather's so rough, they're all fed up and say that they've had more than enough. I've got a brother, he's an able seaman, and they call him Redhead Tom. I want to say I'll meet you, and with your pals I'll treat you. So who'd you think I've had a message from? Forty-seven ginger-headed sailors. Coming home across the briny sea When the anchors wait and the churn is made Then they'll start the party with a heave-o-me-hearty When there's 47 ginger-headed sailors You can bet you're going to hear them when they hail us And as they step ashore, there'll be one mighty roar From 47 ginger-headed sailors this is Shot and Shield, the Supercast, the May 2023 edition episode, as it were. I would like to uh, apologize for the episode coming out a little bit later than uh, normal. Normally, I, like I said in the past, I've, I like to do this on the first of every month. Uh, but between the new job uh, and just stuff around the house... Uh, nothing crucial. It's just a lot of different hours. Uh, I'm trying to get used to the the new job, and uh, it's a it's a lot of work, and it's a lot of hours, and it's always these oddball hours. And it's, I'm I'm trying to find a happy medium between doing the podcast, painting, uh, ob- obviously spending time uh, with family, and uh, getting the job done. So I appreciate you uh, being patient with me as I kind of work this out. So hopefully I'll get it worked out so I can get back to being, uh, you know, having the having the podcast drop on the first of every month. But in the meantime, you know, I appreciate your patience. But in the meantime, let's continue on in this episode's Wargamers movie review. It starts now. Shot and Shield. What are you looking at? It's time for Shot and Shield movie review. So in this episode of the War Gamers movie review, I dig into the 1980 classic Lion of the Desert. Now, before I get into it, you're probably wondering why am I talking about a movie based in the intra-war period and not the 19th century. It's because it is essentially a movie about colonialism, which is a topic we touch on quite a bit here. On the podcast. Plus, I think as a war gamer, we can get a lot out of this movie. Okay, so there you go. That's that's where my mindset is. To continue, Lion of the Desert stars Anthony Quinn as Omar Mukhtar, Oliver Reed as General Rodolfo Graziani, Rod Steiger as Benito Mussolini, John Gilgood as Sharif El Gariani, and Robert Brown as Al Fadil. This has a lot of players. 
in this movie. It's a long, long movie. But in the story itself is a well-worn tale. Peaceful good guy, loves his country. Bad guy tries to take it over. Peaceful good guy becomes violent good guy to prevent the bad guy from taking control. And in some cases, like let's say Robin Hood, the good guy prevails. But in Lion of the Desert, the good guy eventually loses, but not without making a huge impact on history and the history of his people. The story is briefly like this. In the years leading up to World War II, Rodolfo Graziani, general, played by Oliver Reed, is directed by Benito Mussolini to subdue the Libyan people in order to help Benito create the new Roman Empire. However, Graziani's Italian forces are frequently defeated by the army of the Bedouins, led by the lovable and wise grandpa, Omar Mukhtar, played by Anthony Quinn. Exceptionally played by Anthony Quinn. Graziani is also known as the Butcher of Ethiopia because of his attitude towards winning. He'll do anything, using mustard gas on civilians, women and children, torture, etc. Graziani is not a nice guy. Even at the end, when Graziani has to salute because he's gained the re- because all of a sudden he got respect for uh, Omar Mukhtar. <laughs> I don't think that really happened because Graziani's just not that guy. But, you know, Oliver Reed, got to play it somehow, right? I love the opening sequence where it shows some newsreel footage to really set the movie in historical context. In this, our 20th century, almost every nation in the world has at some time been in conflict. The oppressors and the oppressed, the victors and the vanquished, the people of war, a tragic indictment of our civilization. A time when much of the world was looking for ways to increase their influence, power, and riches. Full of dreams for the restoration of the glory that was Rome, in 1911, Italy joins the hunt for territory. Libya, on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea, is the target. Landings were made at Tripoli, Benghazi, Zwara, Sirte, Derna and Tobruk. The local population, fighting on many fronts, made fierce and resolute resistance to the invaders, thus bringing the war to a stalemate. 1922 saw a dramatic change in Italy. The beginning of Mussolini's era of dictatorship. The conflict in Libya escalated as more and more fascist might was thrown against the stiffening resistance of the local population. Now, early on in the movie, Omar Mukhtar learns that Graziani is the new governor, right? Yes, Pumatari. What is the news? A new governor. Okay, huh? <laughs> uh, they always come in like... Like lions. And go home like worn-out goats. <laughs> well, uh, who is it this time? Graziani, the butcher of Fazan. That's good. It was only a question of time before they let him loosen us. It will mean a new offensive. My father used to say, blows that don't break your back, strengthen it. We will show Graziani some spine. This movie is replete with battle action. The first one starts about 33 minutes in with a group of armored cars uh, being attacked by Bedouins. 
And the, the Bedouins are using this almost dune move. You know, at least I call it the dune move, where the warriors are hidden in the sand and pop up and attack and wipe out the Italians. It really is dune-like, if you've seen the movie uh, Dune, right? Or read the books. Now, obviously, Graziani, he hears about this, and he's none too pleased, right? Wiped out. One lieutenant. And one scout car. That is all that's left of a fighting force. I did not come to Libya to be stung by bandits. Gentlemen, I will repeat one simple fact to you. We're not merely fighting Mukhtar and 200 of his men here or, or 50 of his men there. We are fighting a population. We will fill their wells. We will burn their fields. We will destroy their trees. We will turn their land brown. I could go on and on about this movie. It's a long one, two hours, 54 minutes, but unfortunately I just don't have that much time. There's a lot of battle, and in the end, Anthony Quinn is executed. This is a really, really good movie. Here are some takeaways for the war gamer. The director and the producer of Lion of the Desert went to great lengths to be accurate. The uniforms are on point. The artillery is on point. The tanks are on point. The armored cars are exactly on point. They are exactly the same armored cars that they used. The tactics by both sides, the Bedouins and the Italians, are on point. You can use this movie to help you create your theater, troops, and you get the historical perspective in your gaming for this era. Let's say you're going to do intra-war Italians versus, you know, versus either the Ethiopians or the Libyans in this case. This is the movie you watch. And all you do is sit there and write down all the colors you're going to need and write down the, the, the armored cars you're going to need, the Lancia, right? And you're just going to sit there and write it all out. And then you're going to take it. You're going to go order the figs and the armor you're going to need. You're going to you're going to order the terrain you need, or you're going to build it the way you want it, and you're going to, you could do it just off this movie. You don't need a book. You don't need anything else, any other resource. you got it right here. I give this a five-pith helmet on the five-pith helmet scale. You can get so much out of this movie, especially if you're playing or planning the interwar Italian-African campaigns. If you've never seen it, you have to see it. I'm telling you, I'm ordering you right now, as your Grand Duke of the Duchy of Florida, I'm ordering you right now to see it. (laughs) That's a little bold, isn't it? But here's what you can do. You can go to the Shot and Shield YouTube channel right now under the Shot and Shield Presents playlist, and Lion of the Desert is right there waiting for you to hit play. You can do this. It's an excellent movie, and it's ready for you right now. Coming up. Another Anthony Quinn piece, it's the Shot and Shield watch-along, is next. This is Shot and Shield. It's going to hurt you a lot more than it will me, I'm happy to say. A podcast dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming. Discipline makes the strength of armies. Shot and Shield. Hi, I'm famous podcaster and influencer, Sir Scott. And when I was young, my analyst said that I had an overactive imagination. I mean, he was a financial analyst, but he was still right, okay? 
Now, as a kid, I would always see my G.I. Joes capture tigers, excavate treasures, or elude dangerous snakes. And I would lose myself in Adventures of Tarzan, in Flash Gordon, and Conan. Old-time radio always had that magic that could transport you to different times and transport you to different worlds. And now I offer you a podcast filled exclusively with adventures in audio. Search and subscribe to Vintage Radio Adventures, found on most podcast apps. That's Vintage Radio Adventures. This is Shot and Shield. Hallyho, Pip-Pip-Bum, Bernard's your uncle. Thank you for listening to Shot and Shield, the May 2023 episode. I have had many requests through email, uh, talking to friends. At that last convention, somebody asked me about it, the the last convention I went to. Uh, When are you going to do the watch-along again? I Initially, I thought I'd do the watch-along and just put it on the YouTube when I had a chance, but I really haven't had a chance really to do that, (laughs) at least well, at least the way I want to do it. So I thought, you know what? I should just do this. Let me bring back the watch along, at least for this episode. And today's watch along is a classic Lawrence of Arabia. It is the scene where Lawrence of Arabia, Lawrence Peter O'Toole, just gets back from Cairo. And now he's engaging in guerrilla activities. It's the scene where they start with the blowing up of a train, the attacking of the train, the looting of the train. A guy dies by sword. There's a bunch of great back and forth. It's just an amazing scene. And I, I will tell you, I think they just use the machine gun or at least present the machine gun in its proper context the only film i think that's ever done that ever 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 (laughs) so here's how this works you go to the shot and shield youtube page you go to youtube and you search out shot and shield just like that on the page is a list it's called battle clips you go down to battle clips you find the lawrence of arabia battle clip and on the count of three we both hit play at the same time you ready i'll give you a second That's enough. (laughs) One, two, three. So we start out Lords of Arabia, this particular scene uh, with the the explosion, the the blowing up, sabotage of the uh, train. And then I love this movie so, so good. You know my my penchant for when people are using the machine guns. So here you got the Arabs. They're using the machine guns, and they're actually it's actually more accurate than not. I mean, they're they're the the machine guns are mowing down people. They're just mowing down people. So now you got the Lawrence uh, Peter O'Toole. He's going to jump out in front of the firing Arabs, which. Always kind of a little bit bizarre. I know the Arabs aren't going to hit him, but, you know, I don't know if I'd be that brave to walk out in front of a firing line and say, hey, guys, you need to stop, you know, with your flare gun. So finally, Anthony Quinn here, Abu Dai, right? He just holds a couple of their, a couple of their guns and right on, no problem. They all stop. It's, <laughs> so it's kind of like, all right, whatever. 
Now they're all rushing down to uh, to the train. Lawrence is just walking. He's confident. He knows what's going on. And now it's it's looting time. There's a there's a part of the of this scene later in the scene where Omar Sharif is talking to I forget the actor's name, but another brilliant actor about payment about them getting paid and then leaving and it's brilliant we'll come to that here at the end of the clip but now Lawrence is walking around with the uh, reporter this guy right here is walking out he's so stunned and dazed he's walking out into the desert and got the guy stealing the or taking the tie clip I shouldn't say stealing and Anthony Quinn walking with the umbrella that's, that's all busted. He's all proud of himself. Looks at the clock. That's pretty good. Now, uh, Peter O'Toole, now he's on top of the train. The Turk, the Ottoman officer with the gun, taking aim out. This is another, this, this, this whole scene is so replete. With so much, so many layers, the the officer is not gonna is not gonna kill Lawrence, not because he's not a good marksman, but he is just beat up, and so it's hard for him just to sit up, let alone take aim. So, to, so the fact that he even hit uh, Lawrence here uh, was probably quite amazing, and he's missing, you know. So, the, and Lawrence sees him, and so he's giving him the eye. And just waiting for Abu uh, Abadai to come around with a sword. You know the scene. You probably don't even have to have it on the, the YouTube right now, but here comes uh, Anthony Quinn with the sword. And this is another great layered piece. You don't have to see it. Like in now, now movies today, they have to see the blood and guts. But then you can still let your mind do the imagination. So here's uh, uh, Abu Dai come in. Hits the, hits the officer with the sword. You don't see it. You don't need to. You know what happened. Anthony Quinn busts up the camera. <laughs> <laughs> I love that line. Charming company you keep. That's fantastic. If you think about history in general and you wonder why Lawrence of Arabia, just in general, uh, you know, got such such a big head and, and didn't think anything could hurt him. Look at this is a great this is another layered scene where it's fantastic. The all of these Arabs, all the this this crew is telling him he's awesome. And it's hard for anybody, anybody to have that kind of multitude of people talk about how awesome you are and not start to believe it yourself. My stint in radio, 15 years. And for 12 of those years, I don't know how many times I was told I was awesome. It took me, it, it, it took a toll. And the ego 
gets blown up. And I can't say that my ego wasn't blown up at the time. But yeah, so I can totally understand while when you see Lawrence of Arabia and you see him get that big head, it's hard to not understand why. This looting has got to stop. This is great. It's, the the this little scene here between Omar Sharif and the other actor, I so I forget his name. I'm so sorry. And their back and forth is just fantastic. So that's the that's the clip. Lawrence of Arabia is you know it is like my number one film. It's my it's just my number one film altogether. So I think I've watched this like a a thousand times. And if you go back and watch the scene or you watch the movie over and over and over again, you can still see little little pieces, little layers of greatness in the different themes that they have going on in the film. So the director uh, and then the actors, Peter Tool, Anthony Quinn, Alec Guinness, Omar Sharif. There's so many great actors of uh, Claude Rains. Claude Rains, who's known for his black and white movies, he comes in here and he just does this great subtleness. Uh, I, if you want to just go back and watch this clip over and over again, if you're listening to the podcast now and you haven't, you just listened to that and you're, you're going to go back and watch the clip, once again, it's on uh, the YouTube channel. Just search out uh, Shot and Shield and it's under the list called Battle Clips. It's six minutes, 14 seconds of pure awesomeness so and and one one more note one more note is they used the machine gun correctly there's one movie that finally used the machine gun correctly presented it in a correct way and so i applaud that yay excellent excellent so with that said uh coming up next i'll be doing my deep dive on gaming the u.s marines at the turn of the century Next, Stun Shot and Shield. What are you waiting for? Come on, come on. Shot and Shield, your colonial wargaming podcast. The 19th century ended amid the glories of the Victorian era. Shot and Shield, a podcast dedicated to wargaming the colonial era. In those aristocratic Victorian days, when, as Disraeli said, the world was for the few and for the very few. The views expressed during Shot and Shield are the hosts and only meant to be taken seriously if you feel it's necessary. Good luck against those elephants. And now, Shot and Shield. In this episode of uh, the Shot and Shield Supercast, I wanted to take a little deep dive on a subject that uh, some of you have written me about, but also a subject that I've seen a lot of resurgence in uh, as of late. Conflicts from the turn of the century. Now, I'm not talking about the 20th century to the 21st century, although there's been a lot of conflicts there, but the 19th century into the 20th century. Not only has there been a high degree of technological advancement uh, with the machine gun and pre-dreadnoughts, but also in troop tactics. Tactics started to move away from line formations and battling in battalions 
and regiments, but then going to a more squad level. So squad level skirmishing became the norm after the turn of the century. And you saw that in the Boer War, in the Russo-Japanese War, in the Boxer Rebellion, and the Spanish-American War, just to name a few. Uh, The one unit that seemed to have jumped all in with the troop tactic of squad skirmishing was the U.S. Marines of the time. Now, I'm not going to go and give you a full history of the U.S. Marines. I know they've been around a long time. I'm only going to specifically talk about this turn of the century period between like 1890 and 1916. Uh, After the Civil War, the American Civil War, and before the incursion into Mexico to fight Pancho Villa. One of the reasons the U.S. Marines were really important to the American military at that time was due to its relatively small size and its ability to enter an expedition quickly. You know, at the turn of the century, they're not flying down helicopters, they're they're on gunships and they're on gunboats and they're part of like the Navy and stuff, right? And we're not just talking about the Spanish-American War, but the Boxer Rebellion in China, the Perticaris incident in Morocco, the Banana Wars in Haiti, but also in Veracruz, Santo Domingo, Nicaragua, the Philippines, and so on. The U.S. Marines were usually the first ones to see action in these areas because the Navy was all over the world and always, always had a contingent of Marines with them. If you are playing this era of conflict, the U.S. Marines are a unit that are a necessity to your tabletop gaming, okay? The uniform is really simple. Blue shirt, khaki tan or light blue pants, black boots, tan hat. Boom, you're set. I know there's probably a few details here and whatever, but really when it comes down to it, your basic uniform, blue shirt, khaki tan, or light blue pants, black boots, tan hat, you are set. As for companies that make figures for the U.S. Marines of this era, a few come to mind, and only a few, because not a lot of companies have really jumped in on the turn of the century. You have Boer War out there, absolutely Uh, You have Boxer Rebellion, but there's very few companies that make U.S. Marines. In 28mm, Victorious Miniatures, 1898 Miniatures, Steve Barber uh, models, those those are the three that spring to mind right away. In 25mm, U.S. Marines can be found with minifigs and Old Glory. In plastic, you're looking at Red Box, they make uh, 172nd scale. Uh, Also, U.S. Marines uh, from Armies in Plastic for 132nd scale. And that is your, you know, and that's sort of where you sit if you're looking to do the Marines. Now, you might might find some some figures that look kind of like something you need from other, uh, from other manufacturers, but you know, from what I've seen and what I've uh, what I've viewed and what I've researched, there's only a few here and there. The U.S. Marines are just one of these f- troops that, if you're gonna do turn of the century, you really need to have in your in your toolbox, especially if you're playing the Box Rebellion or the Spanish-American War. But like I said earlier, Morocco, Veracruz, Philippines, Nicaragua, you have a lot a lot going on there. And you don't really need a lot of figures to make that work. That's just, you know, that's just a tidbit of what I have for the U.S. Marines. This is a basic unit, very basic unit. And they're easy to create as far as the unit size, easy to paint. In some cases, they're easy to find if you know the right places to go. All right, Marines, nice punch. So instead of doing a deep dive, maybe it's more of an introductory into the U.S. Marines. Um, coming up next on Shot and Shield, we're going to dig in and do some archaeological finds 
in audio. This is Shot and Shield. You don't think I too dream of peace? You don't think I too yearn to end this damn dirty job we call soldiering? Frankly, no. From the land of the audio to the world of the visual, the Shot and Shield podcast is on YouTube. I use YouTube for supplementary information, such as watch-along videos, documentaries of interest, movies that I find that uh, best represent colonial or 19th century inspirations or gaming, and eventually video from interviews that I've uh, already done and that you've heard on the podcast. Just search out, in parentheses, Shot and Shield. You got to put the parentheses in there, parentheses, Shot and Shield, and parentheses, and you'll find it on the YouTube. There's also a link on the podcast info page. So check it out and subscribe to Shot and Shield on YouTube. Shot and Shield, a podcast dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming. This is Shot and Shield. Thank you for continuing to listen to Shot and Shield on your favorite podcast apps. Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Google, Ghana, Deezer, etc. I do ask that you uh, subscribe, share, and hopefully if you like the show, please give it five stars in the review section. If you don't want to give five stars, that's fine. That's fine. If you don't think it's a five-star show, okay. It's okay. I would put my heart and life into this. (laughs) that's cool uh anyway now it's time for me to dig into the archives and present our audio discovery for the day i look for these old time radio shows to help set the scenes to help help set the flavor of our gaming and today's presentation is uh, no different we go to the scene as it were as the mexican people have had enough of their leader maximilian and he's in for it from 1948, you are there. This is Don Hollenbeck in the newsroom, set up in the Capuchin Convent in the city of Carretero, Mexico. In 20 minutes on this morning of June 19th, 1867, it will be dawn here in Carretero. In 20 minutes, the sun will rise over the Hill of Bells, the execution grounds about one mile from this convent. And at that time, unless President Benito Juarez intervenes in the condemned man's behalf, the 35-year-old Archduke Maximilian of the Habsburgs, the former Emperor of Mexico, will die before a firing squad of the Republic of Mexico. The Archduke will be taken from his cell about 100 feet from this newsroom, escorted to the Hill of Bells, where seven Republican soldiers will level their guns at Maximilian and his... June 19, 1867... Territorio, Mexico. You are there. The fate of the romantic Maximilian rests in the hands of a realistic man of the people, Benito Juarez. CBS takes you back to the climactic moments in the life of the last crowned head to rule in North America. All things are as they were then, except for one thing. When CBS is there... You are there. 
You Are There is based on authentic historical fact and quotation. And now... A convent in Mexico and Don Hollander. Extended the life of the Archduke for three days until dawn this morning. If President Juarez means to spare the life of Maximilian, there is little time for him to do so. The President is now in his executive offices at San Luis. Meanwhile, there is mounting international pressure upon Juarez to commute Maximilian's death sentence and send the former emperor back to Vienna. Eloquent pleas and protests from all over the world have been pouring into San Luis, and the rumor persists that Juarez may decide before the sun rises to heed those pleas for the life of the tragic Habsburg. And now for a report on those protests, we take you to San Luis and Ned Calver. President Juarez has now heard from all the crowned heads of Europe. The royal houses have formally pledged that if Juarez pardons the Archduke, neither he nor any other royal personage will ever return to Mexico. But curiously enough, protests against Maximilian's execution have been coming in also from democratic quarters throughout the world. Secretary of State Seward, on behalf of the United States government, wired President Juarez that, I quote, harsh measures would not raise the character of the United States of Mexico in the esteem of the civilized people. Messages have also arrived from Victor Hugo, the noted French novelist, and Giuseppe Garibaldi, the great Italian liberator. Our overseas staff has made special tape recordings on which Monsieur Victor Hugo and Signor Garibaldi personally speak excerpts from their messages. Here is the first, Victor Hugo speaking. I have today telegraphed the President of the Republic of Mexico. Juarez, this will be your second victory. The first in overcoming usurpation is superb. The second in forgiving the usurper will be sublime. Let the Republic rest on the command of God. Thou shalt not kill. And now the voice of Giuseppe Garibaldi. To His Excellency Benito Juarez, I have said, Juarez, you rose from a humble toiler in the Sierra of Oaxaca to become the great laborer of liberty, civilization, and progress. Because of your deeds and your virtues, you have been rightly hailed the Lincoln of Mexico. Now, add to your deeds and to your virtues and spare Maximilian. This is Ned Kalmer. I return you to Don Hollenbeck in Carretero. The question is, will President Juarez be influenced by this mounting tide of pleas, protests, and threats? Here at our microphone is a young lady who personally pleaded with Juarez for Maximilian's life as recently as 72 hours ago. She is the Princess Salm Salm, an American born in New York, used to be a bareback rider in a circus. Then she married Prince Salm Salm and aide to Maximilian. Princess Salm Salm, when you came to him to beg for the life of the emperor, what did President Juarez say? Juarez is no president. He's a monster, an Indian devil. I fell on my knees before him. I wept. I cried, save him. Save my emperor. But that, that fiend didn't shed a tear, not a single tear. But did he say anything to you, Princess? He sniveled. The president of Mexico sniveled. Then he tried to raise me up. Princess, he said... Princess, all the sovereigns of Europe were at my knees. I could not spare your Maximilian. It is not I who am taking his life. It is the law and the people. The 
people. What does that Indian know about people who kill the father of all people? Well, then, in your opinion, Princess Sound Sound, President Juarez will not be influenced. No. He will not spare the life of Maximilian. No, 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 no. There will be no pardon. Juarez the stone and my emperor will die at dawn. Poor Max. He had to die. He should have gone to heaven three days ago. He was ready then. But now, when the dawn breaks, he must die again. Why? Why must he die twice? Well, is it true, Princess Salmsalm, that you are now technically under arrest for being involved in a plot to bring about the escape of Maximilian? Arrest? What does arrest mean? I would give my life, my body, my soul to free Max. And I tried, believe me, I tried. But the others were all cowards. The Austrian minister signed the check and then wait, he had his wait, name... Wait, wait, what check, Princess? The check, the check for $100,000 that the Austrian minister signed. I was to use it to bribe the guards. But I failed. I failed my Max, my emperor. I failed miserably. Thank you, Princess Salmsam. We do appreciate your speaking to us. The princess has just said that Juarez declared it was not he who is taking the life of Maximilian, but the law and the people. And as for the law, let's hear now what one of Mexico's great legal minds has to say, Senor Mariano Riva Palacio, the man who defended Maximilian at his court martial. Senor Palacio, is there anything in the law of Mexico that can save the Archduke's life? Yes. If the law of Mexico were properly administered, it would snatch the Archduke from the firing squad. Well, it's your opinion, then, that the law has not been properly administered. It has not. I deny now, as I denied during the court-martial, the competency of the court to try my client. Let us look at the charge, eh? Maximilian was accused of being a rebel, a usurper of public power, an enemy of the independence and security of the nation a disturber of order and public peace, and a violator of international law and individual rights. I ask you, senor, is that a reasonable charge? Well, isn't it based on the Mexican Constitution? No. These sonorous phrases are fit only for novelists, not for the courts of Mexico. Juarez knows that. Well, Juarez himself is an attorney, isn't he? Yes, he's a great lawyer. He knows that if Maximilian is a rebel, he should be tried by a civil court. Well, isn't Maximilian a rebel? No, he is a prisoner of war, and as a prisoner of war, he should be set free when the war is over. What is more, this is a civil war between the forces of Maximilian and the forces of Juarez. In the United States, you have just ended a civil war. Did Abraham Lincoln shoot the Confederate President Jefferson Davis? No. And I say to you now that if Juarez is as compassionate and as logical as Lincoln, and I believe he is, he must let Maximilian remain alive. But there are Mexican patriots who argue that Maximilian must be punished for the blood that's been shed these past four years. Punishment, yes, but why punish a dupe? An innocent dupe who came here with pitiful illusions that he was welcome as an emperor, a great liberal monarch who would work hand in hand with Juarez to create noble social reforms. Thank you, Senor Palacio. The attorney's point that Maximilian was an innocent dupe brings up the question, who did the duping? Who are the guilty? What are their motives? For an examination of those questions, here is Quincy Howe, as recorded earlier today in London. As the best-informed people in London see it, there seem to be three guilty groups with three sets of motives. First, Emperor Napoleon III of France and his half-brother, the Duke de Morny, have allowed themselves to become the paid collection agents of a notorious Swiss banker named Yecker. 
This yucca lent an earlier Mexican government $750,000 cash. He now demands $15 million back. That's 20 times as much as he lent. And Yucca promised to give the Duke de Morny a straight 30% commission if the Duke could persuade Napoleon to set up a Mexican government that would pay the 15 million. Maximilian tried to set up such a government. But Maximilian himself represents a different group with different motives. Maximilian belongs to the ancient House of Habsburg, which has one supreme purpose in this world, to destroy the French Revolution and all its works everywhere. This means the Habsburgs and their supporters also oppose our American Revolution and all those Latin American revolutions that overthrew Spanish rule and established republics in the New World. The Habsburgs and their supporters want to set the hands of the clock back to the year 1500 to reassert the divine right of kings, to restore some of the power and prestige that the Roman Catholic Church has lost since the time of the Protestant Reformation. Certain British conservatives, whom the late Lord Palmerston used to lead, represent the third guilty group in Mexico. They did not back either Yaka or the House of Habsburg openly, but they did welcome Napoleon's attempt to set up Habsburg rule in Mexico because it seemed likely to weaken the Monroe Doctrine and to give Mexico a government through which foreign capital could exploit the country. But Palmerston did not represent the mass of the British people any more than the Habsburgs represent the mass of the people of Europe. As a result, public opinion here in England, and on the continent too, has little sympathy for the guilty groups whose mixed motives have brought tragedy both to Maximilian and to Mexico. This is Don Hollenbeck in Carretero. You've just heard Quincy Howe by transcription in London. And now we've just had word that Maximilian has completed his final devotions... And for a first-hand report from Maximilian's cell, we switch now to Richard C. Hotlet. The emperor's cell is small and narrow. There's an iron bed, a simple washstand, and three chairs. With the emperor in these last moments are his confessor, Father Hilarion Frias Isoto, who, oddly enough, is a follower of Juarez, and also José Luis Blasio, Maximilian's secretary. The emperor is standing here with me. Your majesty, would you care to make a statement? What is there to say? I've just learned that my poor Queen Carlotta is dead, and because of this I go to my grave more tranquilly. She was my only remaining earthly tie, and now she's in heaven. But, Your Majesty, the rumor of the Empress Carlotta's death has been denied. Rumor? What shall we say of rumors? There's also a rumor that Juarez will spare my life. But it does not matter. I deserve to die. My only wish which was Carlotta's too, is that we be buried beside each other. And I believe she is dead. I believe she died of grief and a broken heart, for she went to Europe to plead with Napoleon to honor his treaty not to withdraw his troops until my Mexican empire was firmly established. Now the whole world knows our Bonaparte keeps his word. But, sir, why did you continue to fight after Napoleon had withdrawn his troops? For honor? My mother urged me to fight for the honor of the Habsburgs. And the clergy here in Mexico promised me arms and money. And those Mexicans who hate Juarez promised me armies. But the armies never arrived. Poor fool that I was to believe them. And the crowned heads of Europe, Your Majesty, are still pleading for you. Franz Josef, your own brother. My own brother, my dear beloved Franz Josef. 
Or is he but another poor relative of Bonaparte's, like myself? Where was Franz Joseph when I was tried in a mock spectacle on the stage of a theater here in Kiretaro? My beloved brother was in a Viennese music hall. And Napoleon was at the opera in Paris. Now, the crowned heads of Europe did not attend my command performance. And uh, when my Queen Carlotta went to the Pope in Rome, he too said that, unfortunately, he could not help us now. We must wait, he said. Wait. The Pope thinks of time in terms of eternity. But I see now that the soldiers of Juarez have come to lead me to the end of my time. The firing squad has come up and halted in the corridor outside the city. Commander Maximilian to take his place with Generals Maria and Miramundi, two other condemned men. Blasio, the Emperor's secretary, has cried out. He's weeping. Father Hilarion has begun to pray. Your Majesty, is there anything further you wish to say? Yes. I hope that my comrades, General Mejia and General Miramon, will be spared. They are good men. General Miramon was once president of Mexico, and General Mejia's wife has just borne him a new child, and she's mad with grief. The Archduke has walked calmly out of his cell into the corridor. He has taken his place beside his comrades in death. The death procession is on its way down the corridor now. Here in the empty cell, the silence of death already reigns. A single candle sputters on an improvised altar. Ken Roberts is waiting at the entrance to the convent to follow the procession to the Hill of Bells when it emerges. So over to... I switch you instead to our CBS News headquarters here in the convent and Von Hollenbeck. Maximilian's queen, her royal highness, the Empress Carlotta, is alive. That fact has been confirmed by Arthur Hannes in Europe. Hannes is now at Miramar Castle on the shore of the Adriatic Sea near Trieste, ready to talk with her royal highness. Hannes tells us that it is true that Carlotta had suffered a nervous breakdown due to the grief and tension brought on by her unsuccessful audience with the Pope to save the empire. She collapsed in the Pope's chambers, was taken to Miramar Castle, and placed under her physician's care. However, she has now recovered sufficiently, and she has her doctor's permission for this interview. So we take you to Miramar Castle near Trieste and Arthur Hannes. Your Royal Highness, is there anything you would care to say at this moment? Yes. I would like to say that we must save the Indians of Mexico. That is the task that God has set for Maximilian and myself. And even without my beloved Max, I must go on. But, Your Royal Highness, you will no longer... If the Indians flourish, the Empire will flourish. I am thrilled with enthusiasm. I have developed social theories on the cause of the revolution in Mexico. We must restore the dignity of the Mexican Indians. Maximilian and I will restore to humanity millions of men. We will not ask help of Bonaparte. We will do it ourselves. We will create a great liberal empire and the Indians will be our citizens. Of course, 
Your Royal Highness. But do you not realize that at this moment, Maximilian... Is ah, in... yes, yes, my Maxi is in danger. And I suppose I am poisoned by our enemies. If I should be poisoned, let me not be embalmed or lie in state. Let me be buried in the simplest way in St. Peter, near the tomb of the apostle. Ah, but what will become of our empire? An heir. An heir, a son to carry on the glorious destiny of an empire for the people. Ah, forgive me, Max, my lord of earth. Forgive me. For I have not borne you a child. Why? Why are we not among the blessed who have given children to the earth? Your Highness, perhaps Suarez... Ah, Suarez! The Liberal Party of Juarez is the most hideous form of demagogy. This party is singing its one song. It is blazing up, blazing, do you hear? It is struggling against state, against law and justice. It will sink into the grave. In the slimy grave. All is slime and poison. Your Highness, Mark. Mark, my beloved sovereign of the universe, happy thee, farewell. God is calling me to him. I thank you for the happiness which you have always given me. May God bless you and help you to eternal peace. You will live. Forever. Peace be with you, Your Royal Highness. This is Arthur Hannes in Trieste. I return you to CBS in Mexico. This is Ken Roberts with the CBS Mobile Unit following the execution procession to the Cerro de las Campanas, the Hell of Bells. There are three carriages in the procession. Maximilian arrives in the first, General Miramon in the second, and General Mejia in the last carriage behind which marches the firing squad. All three carriages are plain black hansoms drawn by black horses. They are escorted by a strong detachment of cavalry and infantry. The procession moves slowly through the streets of Carretero. It is dawn. The first light has broken out on the distant hill of bells, and the sun is rising over the blue hills surrounding Carretero. All along the way, blinds are drawn over all the windows. Doors are shut. But there are a few spectators following this last cortege of the former emperor of Mexico. They are, these followers for the most part, women. They are weeping as they walk behind the carriages. Perhaps they remember now how during the final siege of Carretero, when Juarez's forces surrounded the city, the young archduke mingled freely with the people and shared their meager rations. Riding with us in our mobile unit is Captain George Monrique, a Republican officer, leader by General Mejia. Oh, a, a woman has run up to the carriage directly in front of us, General Mejia's carriage. 
has a baby in her arms. She's screaming. Hanging onto the carriage with one arm and being dragged into the street. The guards are trying to loosen her grip. They pull her away, but she's still fighting on the and trying desperately to get back to the carriage. We're past the carriage now. Who is that woman? What is she shouting? That is the wife of General Mejia. That child in her arms was born but a few days ago. She's pleading for the life of her husband. Captain, did you know General Mejia? Yes. As a matter of fact, I fought under him when I first came to Mexico. I don't understand, Captain. You fought under the general and now you are with Juarez? I am a Frenchman. I came to Mexico with the armies of Napoleon. I was told we were putting down a tyrant. But the tyrant proved to be not Juarez, but Maximilian. It was Maximilian who signed the Black Decree of October 3rd. You mean, Captain, the decree that all Mexicans who were caught carrying arms for the Republican forces were to be summarily shot? Yes. It was the most infamous day in history, a day of massacres. I was detailed to shoot brave soldiers that were captured. There was no pardon for them. I deserted to Juarez, and I am not ashamed. And there were thousands of other French soldiers who deserted with me. This is Ned Calmer in San Luis at the executive offices of President Juarez. We have interrupted Ken Roberts, and on behalf of the combined correspondents here in San Luis, I am privileged to speak with the President of Mexico. President Juarez, you said you had a statement concerning Maximilian? I know that many people throughout the world are waiting to hear that I will pardon Maximilian. Senor... Maximilian came to Mexico and had the audacity to invite me to collaborate with him. And I answer him, Sir, it is given to men to attack the rights of others, to take their property, to take the lives of those who defend their liberty and to make of their virtues a crime and of their own vices a virtue. But there is one thing which is beyond the reach of perversity, and that is the tremendous verdict of history. History will judge us. We must trust in history and in the people. And everything will yield to our will, however stormy the situation may be that awaits us. The people love independence and democracy, and they have no trust for monarchs and moneylenders. The evils of the invaders are too long to recount. The text is long, and the preacher is tired. Although the greatest criminals will go unpunished, and they are Napoleon and the banking house of Yeka, Maximilian must pay. Does that mean, President Juarez, that you will not halt the execution of Maximilian? of Maximilian and the others will be the redemption of the misled. Thank you, President Juarez. This is Ned Calmer in San Luis. I return you to Ken Roberts in Caretaro.
I am on the Cerro de las Campanas, the Hill of Bells. The firing squad and the three who face it are in their appointed places. The great silent crowd here is hemmed in by a square of 4,000 troops. The officer who will give the command to fire has just talked to the Archduke. Maximilian asked him if any of his royal entourage were present. He was told that his faithful manservant, Dulos, was the only one. And a moment ago, Maximilian gave each of the seven soldiers of the firing squad one ounce in gold with the request that they take good aim at his heart. Maximilian has yielded the place of honor in the center to General Miramon as a tribute to a good soldier. Maximilian will die first, but now he is speaking. Maximilian has just said, I forgive everybody. I pray everyone may also forgive me, and I wish that my blood, which is about to be shed, may be for the good of the country. Long live Mexico. Long live independence. The officer has raised his saber. Of the seven guns, one holds a blank cartridge, so he falls down. The soldiers have fired. Maximilian fell face downward on the ground. He's writhing as he lies there. He cried out as he fell. I think his words were, hombre, hombre, man, man. The officer has walked quickly over with a soldier. The officer points his saber to Maximilian's heart and offers him to grasp him. One shot. His pain is over now. And the pain, too, of the abortive rule of a Habsburg on the Western Hemisphere. Now comes General Miramon Tukma, almost silent. They seem to be shocked by the sight of the man who was once their emperor. June 19, 1867. Maximilian, Emperor of Mexico, is dead. That was You Are There from 1948. I wanted to run that uh, because we have a lot of folks listening who like to game Mexico during the time when Napoleon III thought he could install a puppet regime during the American Civil War without the uh, Americans uh, knowing about it. Obviously, Maximilian, an Austrian, uh, wouldn't get to tell them differently, however, but, you know, <laughs> that's just the way it goes. Our time, thus, has come to an end. And you've been listening in Newcastle upon Tyne in England, Kolkata, West Bengal, and Redondo Beach, California. This has been the Shot and Shield Supercast, a podcast dedicated to 19th century wargaming and history, a program meant to be heard while you're painting your miniatures and building your terrain. I have been your host, the Grand Duke Scots of the Duchy of Florida, and I'm out.